I'm Carl McCollman. I am Kevin Johnson. I'm Cassidy Hall, and we are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by listeners like you. Please visit www.patreon.com slash encountering silence. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be a part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. All right, we have been talking a little bit about distractions in our lives and um, both internal and external distractions that keep us from silence, from our silence practices, from encountering silence in our own lives and a variety of things. And as we're kind of sitting here discussing this, Kevin and Carl both brought up uh, the complexities of family and being constantly involved with, with family and our loved ones and, and both how that can allow us to encounter silence in encountering love, right? But also how that can distract us. And I can speak for that too, I suppose, living next door to my two nephews. Yeah. But Kevin, I was wondering for you, um, and having, you know, children at home and everything, how how has that impacted your ability to deeply encounter silence in your own life? It's a really complicated and complex question. It's it's actually very fruitful because a very much a very mixed bag. So on one level, one of the most silent experiences of my life uh, was at the birth of my children. That uh, that the, there was mo- the, uh, just an absolutely powerful moment of uh, allowing l- to let go into that space and to actually just be deeply present in such a way that I hadn't been before. And and and. It, like everything else in this podcast, it's so hard to describe that ineffable experience of seeing your child for the first time and 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 saying hello and thinking you're prepared for that and then realizing you're not and just being overwhelmed with that and so powerfully there. And then even in the midst of, for the first time in my life, experiencing in the midst of crying, you know, a, a, ch- a child, a newborn crying as loudly as they can be and yet somehow... It felt completely silent. It, it aligned well with some of the things we had talked in the past of when I was a kid and being off outside and in the wild w- wilderness. Well, this was wildness right in my arms, uh, you know. So there was something, there was something really profoundly beautiful and wonderful there. And yet, <laughs> as you can imagine, uh, it, I, the distraction of you know, the way you said it before, this idea of, of silent practices, of allowing my attention to be able to turn away from kind of self-concern. And uh, it was really hard because I was struggling, uh, trying to figure out how to be a parent and realizing that oftentimes uh, I would say I was doing something for the kid. But I often, you know, looking back, realized it was for me and the struggles of that and and the the complicated nature of learning how to be a, how to be for other and actually getting out of your own way and while you you do some of that in silent practice if you know all of us who have silent prayer practice or meditation practice how wh- when people do that they recognize right away the struggle with with 
noise and silence and what that looks like. And this is right in your face here uh, when you're with kids, you know, because you feel like you need time alone or, or you feel like if you don't get a chance to break away that, oh, my God, you'll just lose it because you need you need a moment of peace and you don't know how to do that. And so it really capsizes my boat of what I thought, you know, how I was holding it together, so to speak. So it's a beautiful thing that it does that, but it's also confusing. And there's so much more to say there, uh, but I think I, I just want to kind of pause and, and allow Carl to jump in too. But that that begins to unpack for me kind of the messiness of silence and noise with a family. Yeah, I, I love what you said about away from self-concern and this idea that, you know, actually... Also, when you were talking, describing kind of the the tension of uh, a crying baby in your arms, and and actually how these moments of great noise can take us even deeper into our encounters with silence. So, Carl, I'm curious for you and your experience um, well, with your daughter and everything. Well, I'm I'm going to take a slightly different approach. You know, everything Kevin said about having the the family, uh, you know, and I, I'm a stepdad, so I wasn't there at birth, but but I hopped on the train. But still, everything you said, I could totally resonate with. And I imagine probably every parent who has ever tried to balance loving their family and also seeking some sort of a silent discipline is going to face this tension sooner or later. But I want to step a little bit more on the inside, because I think that, you know, the, when we were talking about before we started recording about, you know, what was our topic for today? And we talked about, you know, well, what is the biggest challenge we face in terms of encountering silence? And what I realized that for me, the biggest challenge is probably fear, mm. probably fear or anxiety. I am somebody that has had issues with anxiety in the past, you know, knock, knock on my tabletop. That's, that's not an issue in my life now for the most part, but, but both anxiety and depression have been guests in my, in my, in my heart at points over my life. And so, um, so I think that my experience of anxiety is that anxiety is the opposite of silence. Anxiety is very loud within me. Anxiety has a lot to say. Anxiety is a constant running commentary. And, um, you know, and when, when I am, am wrapped up in, in anxiety's rather unpleasant arms, finding silence is oftentimes just, well, for one thing, I'm, I'm trying to remember how to breathe, you know, <laughs> so you have that going on. Yeah. But, you know, so it's like trying to remember that I'm in a body and that the body has its own wisdom. And if I allow the body to simply be present in, in my body's wisdom, that that becomes a pathway for me. Uh, so, you know, it's like that's the task number one. And then maybe there's this task of, you know, how do I, how do I find that, that radiant place, you know, between and beneath the thoughts. So, um, so, you know, and the thing about anxiety is it can be triggered by a lot of different things. You know, it can be triggered by money. It can be triggered by, by relationship, family. It can be triggered by religion, by God, you know, certainly, you know, with the blogging work, you know, a very nasty comment can trigger it, you know, so, so anxiety can come from many, many corners, but, but that's, that's one of my biggest challenges, I would say, is that when anxiety comes to call to receive anxiety with silence, 
Hmm. Yeah. That is beautiful. I, I felt like I was listening to uh, Rumi's The Guest House poem. You guys familiar with that poem? Yeah, so beautiful. Oh, yes. Um, oh, yes. I, I just pulled it up when you were saying that. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and read it. It's called The Guest House by Rumi. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain, welcome and entertain them all. Even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house, empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. It's so powerful, so beautiful. beautiful. And Carl, I really appreciate you speaking into that that opposition of silence and anxiety and just the ways, I mean, we live in a culture where these kinds of things, anxiety, um, mental health, um, is very, very prevalent. And it's something that I have found silence to be a way of, of dealing with and helping some of, some of my mental health struggles. Now that's not to say that that there are certainly situations, right, where medication is necessary or counseling and therapy is necessary, uh, what have you. But I have found that the silence in my, my encounters with silence to be a place where when I am in touch with that sacred center, I can handle the, the things that would more easily produce anxiety in me a lot more easily, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, again, as usual, these conversations we always, and this is why I, I just so enjoy our time together because it's these conversations so each uniquely ourselves, and yet they're so interpenetrate and intertwine. I mean, Carl says that his problem is anxiety, and I wanted to say, well, duh, that was what I was talking about with my family. <laughs> and well, I mean, it, yeah. yeah, I mean, interior and, exterior, two yeah, sides of the same. Coin, yeah, you know? I mean, and and yeah. I I completely appreciate the way you both are talking about this because I have, uh, you know, I've struggled as well. I think it's a human thing to deal with how we deal with our anxiety, and and that's why that Rumi poem is such a beautiful poem and a wonderful reminder of a way to approach existence with. Without being anxious about it, you know, even allowing anxiety its place, and uh, I, I just um, I think the way that this is important for me, and the way I wrap my head around silence, is to, you know, the way you guys both have spoken about this. Now, it's helpful to realize that what silence can do is is a way that moment, you know, echoing what I said before, moving away from this, uh, this focus on self concern. Right, because anxiety really makes us all makes it really all about whatever's going on, and I'm freaking out, and I can't breathe, and oh my money or my 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 me me me, my, and that voice you know stops you from being able to actually see, um, you know you don't exactly. see too clearly, you know, and and so that silence could actually allow for that space, and so yes, you know definitely therapy, definitely sometimes medication, but that silence could be a wonderful. Uh, component to overcoming, you know, uh, or at least allowing some space there, you know, that can allow something else. I think the challenge for anyone, whether, you know, we're dealing with 
with anxiety or with rage or with jealousy or with depression. You know, there, there are many, you know, afflictive thoughts, to use a term out of the desert tradition, right. that, that can, can arise in our, in our, you know, just our ordinary day-to-day lives. And I think the challenge is to learn to find the silence in the very midst of those things. And I think that's why the Rumi poem is, is so lovely and so helpful, you know, and, and, and you can see how, you know, and of course I, I'm, I'm shaped by the Benedictine world, but you know, the Benedictine and the Rumi are really very, very similar, but this idea that, you know, and Cynthia Bourgeau and some other people talk about the center, the welcoming prayer, you know, this idea that when, when that kind of thing happens, we welcome it. Right. And, right. and that, that doesn't mean that the fear goes away, but what it does is it, it allows us to kind of step back and have a larger field of vision. Right. And we recognize that whatever it is that's arising within us is still arising within the context of the silence that's already there. Right. And, um, you know, and that, so it's remembering the silence even while we're being distracted from the silence. I don't know if that makes sense. No, but it's I think that's tremendous. That's, Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, as we all know, even with maintaining a practice and everything and even with, you know, keeping in touch with that silence, the the things will still come, right? The things that poke at that anxiety. I used to repeat a mantra to myself in the middle of having anxiety, which it's it's very interesting that this topic came up today because the last two days have been very, very difficult for me with anxiety. And um, the mantra I used to repeat to myself is keep the silence and stillness within and I would just repeat, you know, Cassidy, you know, keep the silence and stillness within because it's always there, right? Yep. It's always there. If you've met it once, if you've met it twice, if you've met it every day of your life, you know, you know, it's there and it's within. And so that's always been a very helpful mantra for me. Now, yeah. going back to, I want to circle back to relationships. Yes. Because, you know, and, and to what Carl spoke into relationships, both with ourselves and our beloved um, our family, our friends, whomever, our spouses, our significant others. I'm I'm very curious about kind of talking about silence related to our relationships, and then also, you know, want to throw in this this Benedictine note on it being kind of a school of love. Like, how has silence been a school of love for you and your relationships, both with yourself and and others in your lives? This, this podcast could turn into seven days, uh, these kind of questions. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think I have, a, I have a couple of things, but I think I'm just going to go with this first one. The, the school of love, I lo- it's one, uh, such a great phrase and so true. I'm going to say the, the school of love, how, does, how have I been taught love by silence? And you said either with self or others. And I want to go with self for a second, you know, to kind of piggyback on everything we've just said. Uh, it, it was actually it's actually the silence that allows me to love my anxiety. It's it's actually the silence that allows me to love me, because mm-hmm. to be honest with you, mm-hmm. um, you know, so you know everybody's laying their cards on the table. Is this turning into group therapy? But uh, you know, because you guys are talking about anxiety, and I I you know I deal with that. But uh, uh, what I've dealt with a lot of my life is rage, and that comes completely mm-hmm. out of a a very self aggressive kind of stance where you basically don't think you're worthy and that if you don't earn or act well, then you're not worthy of any kind of love. And so that kind of story is 
been profoundly in my life from the beginning. Uh, you know, I don't know where that comes from or why, and, and who knows if anyone can trace that. I don't have anything in my life that I, I had a wonderful upbringing, so I don't really have anything I can pick it, you know, put it on. But my natural predisposition is to be so self-aggressive and then turn that on the world as well and be very angry. And so to learn to like to be able to say that I love myself even though I'm not perfect or that and, and that I don't have to be has always been a really hard struggle, um, really a, a really difficult thing. No one's harder on myself than me by far. And so what's interesting for me is that the silence actually was the first most profound moments in my life where I felt loved just and being anxious and being angry and being whatever I was was fine. And it's it's an unbelievable thing to have that. So silence, it really has been a school of love out of that, you know, for me. And then that's that just easily goes into my relationships with others. But I mean, that's just a piece of how silence has helped me. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath with us and join us for this 30 seconds of silence. Cassidy, once again, to come at it from a slightly different perspective, you know, one of the concerns I guess I have in terms of how to, how, and I'm, instead of the, use, the word silence, I'm going to use the word contemplative, but you could also use the word mindful or meditative. I mean, there's, there's d- different ways we can approach this, but how to cultivate a contemplative relationship, particularly with my wife, be on the alert for is you misusing silence. And what I mean by that is what John mm. O'Donohue called the unheld conversations. Mm. Oh, yeah. And, and I think that there, there's that the thing about the unheld conversation is that there's an external silence because nothing is being said, but there's a lot of internal noise. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, so this is something that, that, that I find just in terms of kind of, you know, relationship hygiene 101 to, to, you know, to be asking myself. And of course, I have to simply trust that my wife has a similar process because I don't have access to her interior life. You know, I only have access to what she chooses to share with me. But, but I think the, you know, the external silence is, is important sometimes for us to access the internal noise. That's right. And to see this this is something that needs to be brought up. And then usually my palms get sweaty and I get a little nervous because it's probably a conversation I've been avoiding. (laughs) (laughs) And yet, you know, when we actually step into the fire and have the conversation, even if it's difficult, even if it's painful, that's when the opportunity for redemption or for reconciliation or for healing or, you know, or greater intimacy, all of those become possible. 
So, um, you know, I'm, I'm really very blessed in that I'm, I'm married to somebody who, if anything, is even more contemplative than I am. And, um, you know, with the, with the work I do, and I imagine you both have similar kind of experiences, you know, I run into people all the time where it's like, you know, I want this silent prayer practice and my husband or my wife or whatever just doesn't get it, yeah. you know. And, and, and I, you know, my heart goes out to people who are in those kinds of situations. And I, I have, you know, I'm just a lucky man because Fran loves silence and she is very comfortable with sitting in silence with me, whether it's on, in a formal sense of doing, you know, a silent prayer period or in the more informal sense of we're just simply together and she's working on an art project and I'm writing and we're simply mm -hmm. together and we're silent and there's, mm -hmm. there's, there's just so much grace there. So, so, you know, for me, my relationship actually supports my relationship with silence. And I, I count myself as a very lucky man because of that. So. Yeah. And I, I think that one thing that, you know, a lot of people don't even recognize that they experience communal silence with their partner or with a friend or with a community because, because it's not formally stated, right? Or it's not formally described, uh, which is interesting because I think, yeah, formally acknowledged. It's interesting because I think to so sometimes defining it, right, or describing it can take away from the, the actual encounter and, and from the experience. Now, of course, there are certainly times to have, you know, a practice or, or whatnot, but I don't know if you guys have found, you know, those moments, Kevin, maybe you, you've had a moment with, you know, one of your kids. Um, I know I've had moments with my nephews where we're just silent, but as soon as you realize you're silent and you're just embracing, you know, whether being outside together and pointing at butterflies or just sitting silently at dinner and feeling so full of love and goodness but as soon as you kind of say, oh, wow, that's, this feels good. Or, you know, this silence is really nice. It's, go, it's, it's vanished, right? Yeah. So yeah. I think the, the formal, you know, the formal describing is something that sometimes can diminish those communal experiences. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah. It, it, it's you're kind of you'd like to talk about it and point it out, but it's almost like you better off let it go and then maybe record it in, in memoir. <laughs> <laughs> and let people read about it or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, even on an interior level, you know, if you're having a graced moment during silent prayer. Yes, exactly. When, when it's like the, the, the monkey has finally taken a nap. Yeah, exactly. And the temptation is, wow, this is so great. But yeah. the monkey's chattering again. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's you're like, wow, that's spectacular silence. Damn it, <laughs> he just like blew it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and this all goes back to the title of this podcast, right? Right. Experiencing versus encountering. That's right. I mean, that's right. Letting go of the naming and you know, and truly encountering is is a step in a totally different direction than experience. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, that's, I'm glad you point that out because I think that's really what this 
what we've been talking about almost this whole episode is the moment, the, the bouncing in between experiencing and encountering, whether it's experiencing where we're thinking about ourselves and interpreting the world or my rage or uh, you, what you just described with being with the, you know, somebody beautiful, having a beautiful moment or whether what Carl just said, you're having that silent moment and you're there it is the encounter. And then all of a sudden, like experience comes quickly to interpret, control it, manipulate it, be involved with it. And then that's the falling out of it. It's, it's really kind of that interesting thing. And I, I, I mean, again, it'll come up a million times, uh, but it's, it's, uh, I think an essential piece for our modern world of, of w- how does encounter fit in with experience? Cause experience really dominates for us uh, as a culture. And I think experience is an, an, an essential part of what it means to be a human being. You can't erase it and you don't, you shouldn't try, but like that there's this other piece that just kind of gets ignored and should be part of this conversation. So I think a lot of times when people say they want to experience something, they really just want deep participation or deep engagement or deep something. And so they use the word experience, but that's why mm-hmm. I always say, uh, no, you're not trying to control it. You're trying, it's this other thing. And mm-hmm. Try to find a word yeah. for it, you know? And so the, we've mm-hmm. been using the word encounter, but maybe that doesn't work, you know, doesn't work necessarily for some people, but just well, trying to I articulate think- that. I think language always betrays silence. Exactly. You know, this is this is this is the profound paradox that yes. we're yeah. that we're all kind of grappling with. And whether we talk about experience or we talk about embodying or we talk yep. about encountering, meeting, yep. um, a- any of those kinds of words, they all subtly introduce a kind of subject-object split. Yes. And whether it's, you know, between me and God, I'm experiencing God or I'm encountering silence or, or I'm embodying the spirit. I mean, however you want to frame it, it, it just it just injects this kind of dualism. It just just, you know, uh, you know, it can lead to narcissism, solipsism, you know, kind of self-involvement. It, it, it has the unintended consequence of making God other, making God separate, projecting God out. And, um, you know, reinforcing this idea that, that I am somehow less than, you know, there's, there's just all sorts of perniciousness in language. And he, he says this as someone who makes his living with words, <laughs> Exactly. But, you know, even down to the point of here, I am talking about this, in this <laughs> at this very moment. So we need language. We need language to communicate, to, to connect and silence in, invites us beyond language. And so it's, it's mm. this. So maybe when we talk about the biggest challenge, ironically, maybe the biggest challenge is language. Um, <laughs> Interesting. You know, right. And yet, right. And yet that is not, it would be dualistic to say, oh, it, all we have to do is stop using language. Yeah. Number one, I don't think that's possible. I think we use language not only mm-hmm. externally to talk to one another. But internally, I think it, it shapes our consciousness. Of course. And so, um, you know, I'm a good postmodernist in that respect. And so, <laughs> so it's 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 really learning to dance with mm-hmm. the words and the silence, within or beyond those yeah. words. Right. Yeah, I think it's interesting that this has all come up. Also, because I've been, I don't want to say accused, but. I've been accused from time to time of using too many words to describe things or to define things, define things. And I was joking with someone the other day that I would take 300 pages to explain one thing where this person could take 50 pages and we're saying the exact same thing. So I think a lot of it is 
using our language responsibly in a way that it has open hands and lets go, right? That we're willing to hear the other person or we're willing to allow it to be evolving. And I like what Kevin was saying earlier about almost kind of this idea of, yeah, not experience, but encounter, but also it's, it's wild. It's a wild encounter. And then Carl, of course, what you said, you know, that language always betrays silence. You know, those are two very profound things, but if we let our language, because again, we're not getting rid of it. So if we let our language wildly encounter the silence that we experience, that we encounter, you know, what does that look like? It is always evolving. It is always growing. Right. right. Well, I think it's no accident that all three of us are poetry geeks, mm. among other things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and that the, I mean, what is a poem? A poem is just a useless spray of language. And yet that in that useless spray of language, we find beauty, we find meaning, we find insight, we find connection, we find ourselves. And so it, it, it has been, I, I think when the first Neanderthal grunted three different grunts and made a sentence, the second Neanderthal rearranged those grunts and made the world's first poem. Right. You know, <laughs> and we've right. been we've we've been versifying ever since. And so there is something something prodigally beautiful about language just in its ability to sculpt meaning and its ability to help all the things I just said, create connections, create identity, create a sense of self, create a sense of connection with God, with the universe, with, with the environment, et cetera, et cetera. So, so when we say uh, language challenges silence, I think we have to see that in a very rich way, right. that, it, that it, it can pull us away from silence, but then it can also be like the, you know, the analogy that I like is, is uh, with a diamond ring, the l silence or language becomes the setting that holds the diamond of silence. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the setting, a, a beautifully set ring really makes the diamond sparkle. Right. And so, mm -hmm. so I think that, that when language is mindfully entered into, whether it's poetry or whether it's beautiful prose or eloquent speech or or even just speaking compassionately to your child or, or to a loved one after you've had a difficult fight or whatever the, whatever the circumstances may be, that, that, that there's – I mean, think about how we, we associate speaking tenderly with speaking softly. Mm -hmm. it's, almost like, mm -hmm. it's almost like we have mixed silence in to our speaking. Right. You know, and mm -hmm. in doing that, we've, we've turned the volume down. So it's, 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 you know. Well, I like also too how you, a couple points here is you know, first, first off, like you call poem a useless spray of words, which is spectacular because I, it kind of echoes this idea of uh, monks wasting time with God. This idea that like uh, when we use language to achieve something and to do something that really has a lot of ego in it and a lot of grasping and controlling if poetry is is like basically language that's free that doesn't that's it almost has um if it's done really well it's a language without desire it's a language that that somehow doesn't attack or grasp it, it somehow unfolds and allows and 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 so this is interesting what's the connection between words and silence is that they're so interpenetrated 
that that you need to have them both. That you actually can speak yourself into the silence. The the only problem with silence uh, with words is that we get trapped in them, and that yep. like if if it's not on the radar that hey there's this other way or there's this other thing if it's not brought to your attention if you haven't tasted it if you haven't seen it then that really becomes like what I say often as a blind spot and then if you don't see that blind spot then you feel trapped in a cage when you once you've seen the blind spot well then now you realize okay well there's these two things going on there's this silence in the words and you actually need both they actually in the the more you do the silence then you need to try to express kind of what you just encountered after the fact, and then because you tried to express it, if you can let go, it will let you go deeper in. So there's this spiral of the words allow you to go deeper, which allows the silence, which allows the deeper, which is it just keeps going, going, going. Um, if you allow for it, if you otherwise you get trapped in a prison of words. Yeah. So we've we've gone a few different directions this uh, this trip today, huh? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but speaking of poetry. I would love to close with just a couple lines from this poem by Thomas Merton called the love winter when the plant says nothing. And the, the last few closing lines are, Oh, peace, bless this mad place. Silence. Love this growth. Oh, silence. Golden zero. Unsetting sun. Love winter when the plant says nothing. Well, thank you guys so much for today and the wacky turns we always take together. <laughs> yay, yay, wacky. <laughs> because this this was all unexpected as usual, right? So, do we actually have um, a plan? <laughs> plan? What plan? <laughs> That's our motto. Plan. What plan? <laughs> so, thanks well. for today, and we look forward to seeing you all next week. Yes, I look forward to it. Thank you so much for your time, people. All right. Thank you for listening to the Encountering Silence podcast. If you enjoy our ongoing conversations about the beauty of silence and its meaning in our lives, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or at our website, EncounteringSilence.com. You can subscribe to our email list, at our website, connect with us on social media, on Twitter at Silence Podcast, or on Facebook at Encountering Silence. And please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash encountering silence to become a patron of this podcast. Your financial support will allow us to continue creating new episodes and spreading the message of how vital silence is to our social, spiritual, and physical well-being. Mm-hmm.